seated. Hey, good evening. Welcome to Sojourn in the middle of February. Well, not quite, but it kind of feels like the middle of February since January seemed to be such a really long month, and now some hit February, and this coming week we'll be halfway through uh, the second month of the new year. Uh, January seemed like a never-ending month, but um, as we've been looking at our calendar at Sojourn, like we already feel like we're in summer. We've got teams that are coming, and interns are coming, and we're like already in June and July, so um, I'm hoping we can kind of slow through February and March a little bit to kind of catch our breath. Um, I'm excited tonight specifically because we're starting a brand new series, a study in the book of James, which we have titled A Living Faith. And we're going to be there for the next couple of months, probably two to three months, the way that I've sketched it out in our schedule. Um, Tonight we're going to introduce the book itself. Uh, We'll introduce the author of the book, and we'll look at the opening verses, which is going to set the tone for the rest of our study. Uh, The book of James is one of the most celebrated New Testament books by some and it's one of the most criticized New Testament books by others. A quick glance will show us why some have found it to be problematic. James only explicitly mentions Jesus twice. If you know much about our Christian faith, then that's kind of an issue because Jesus is a really important figure, and there's only two times he mentions Jesus, and one of those is going to be in one of our first verses tonight. Uh, there's little said about Jesus' death and resurrection, two very important events that kind of hinge our faith is Jesus' death and resurrection. It's, it's little is said about those events. The letter itself is kind of choppy. It moves from one paragraph to the next. So it almost reads more like if you took notes all during, let's say, Nehemiah, and then we got your notes, and those are what was presented. That's kind of what it reads like. So it's kind of choppy and just jumps from one thought and one idea to the next one. And then some argue that James will even contradict the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul you're probably familiar with. Much of our New Testament comes from the Apostle Paul and um, kind of his style of teaching and even where you would say some of his theology leans. James, some think, contradicts Paul. But hopefully what you'll see throughout this series, that it's more of a supplemental teaching to what the Apostle Paul has already taught us. And then this book is celebrated by others because James is very punchy and direct in his style. And so if if you're someone who who likes that style of of teaching, then it's something you'll enjoy. It's very practical. It addresses things like everyday living. So sometimes we think about theology in the Bible and think, man, that doesn't really apply to me at all. James gets very practicable. He's going to address how we speak, how we speak to one another, so our speech. He's going to address how we should think about our wealth or maybe the lack thereof. He's going to address how to approach conflict with one another and sickness and suffering. And so if you consider yourself a down-to-earth person, then this book is for you. James is a book about spiritual action, about having a living faith. And James, what he's going to do is he's going to show us what a genuine faith looks like in real life And it will challenge us about how real faith works hard and lives distinctly. James' aim is that his readers would serve Jesus more wholeheartedly and radically, and that must also be our goal. So let me say that again. Our goal, if you're taking notes, is that we serve Jesus more wholeheartedly and radically as a result of this series. So we're not just studying the book of James just because we thought, you know what, we kind of go between Old Testament and New Testament, and this book is only five chapters, so it's a little bit shorter. No, there's a goal in this, and that is that we would serve Jesus more wholeheartedly and radically as a result of this series. If you have your copy of Scripture, then go ahead and open them to the book of James. Of course, the words will be on the screen next to me, but I encourage you to bring a physical Bible. If you don't have one, please let us know, and we will gift one to you. I think there's something about having um, just the pages in your hands, and you can underline it and take notes and and the margins and things like that. And if you don't have one, like I said, just let us know. We'll make sure you get one. Um, So while you're turning there, 
if I were to ask you this evening, who in here wants to be more like Jesus? My guess is that every single hand would go up, even if you think, you know what, I'm mad at Jesus right now, and I don't want to be more like Jesus because we're in a church gathering. Like, that is the right answer. So if I ask that question, just raise your hand so you don't feel like you're, you're out of place. But if I were to ask it this way, who in here would like more trials in your life? My guess is all of your hands would go down. Maybe one of you is radical enough that you say, yes, I love trials. But my guess is we're all going, I have enough trials. I have enough difficulties, enough challenges on my plate. If you only knew what was happening in my life right now, there's no way that I would want more. But here's the thing that we're going to see specifically tonight and throughout this series. The two go together. God uses the trials in our life to make us more like Jesus. That's just the reality. It's a hard, it's a hard truth to, to swallow. It's like me saying this. How many of you want a six-pack of abs? Once again, all of our hands go up because I think most of us are like, yeah, like a six-pack of abs? Like that would be great. And so we'd all raise our hands. But if I said, well, how many of you want to spend a few extra hours in the gym every single week, change your diet and your lifestyle in order to accomplish having a six-pack? Well, all of a sudden, most of your hands are going to go down again. And in that case, if you're like me, you're like, I'll settle for a no-pack or a two-pack. I don't necessarily have to have the whole six-pack. And so you're like, I just don't want to put in the work to accomplish the desired goal that I have and the desired outcome. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't think James is saying that we're supposed to seek out trials. We're not supposed to go and foolishly live and say, you know what, this is going to cause more uh, chaos in my life, but I'm just going to do it anyway. But what he's going to help us understand is the trials themselves and how we are to uh, posture our lives when trials come. And so tonight's sermon is titled Joy in Trials. Because the reality is we all face trials. If you're not facing one right now, please come talk to me afterwards. I'd like to know, like, what, do you live under a rock? Do you not experience life with other people? Uh, do you not go to work? Do you not have neighbors? And so we all face trials, but we're going to see how we can find joy in the midst of those trials that we're facing, even the ones you're facing right now. So let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, jump into the actual passage. God, I want to thank you for another Sunday night that we can gather around your name. God, I ask as we look at the book of James, Lord, I think most of us, we try to live a comfortable life and we avoid trials at all cost. But then we continually face trials. And so, God, that we would see how it is that we are to live and how it is that we, of all people, the people of you, can still have joy in the midst of the trials that we are facing. God, I ask that you speak to us during this time. Move me out of the way. May your spirit be present with us in your name. Amen. So look with me now. James 1, we'll start at verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So James starts by establishing who he is. We're thinking, who's, who is James? Well, he says he's primarily a servant. In the Greek, uh, this would have meant literally translated as a slave. And so he's saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul calls James an apostle in the book of Galatians, but James doesn't choose to characterize himself by that title. He simply says, you know what? I am a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's push, placing himself in a humble position. So even though he kind of has the authority, he has a platform to stand on, he chooses not to use it. He says, I am a servant before I am anything. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And so regardless of your place in church or your place in ministry, I think it's a great reminder for all of us how we view ourselves in light of Jesus. I saw a social media post uh, this week that read this. 
I said to my younger brothers who are constantly asking their pastors, when is it my turn to preach? God bless that fire, but you're asking the wrong question. Instead, ask, when is it my turn to do hospital visits? When is it my turn to stack chairs? When is it my, my turn to do setup and tear down? And then he said, if serving is beneath you, then preaching is still above you. And so for our context, our saying, I would say, if serving is beneath you, then leadership is still above you. And I think James is really framing that for us. And, and then he addresses the letter specifically to the 12 tribes. Well, so he says these 12 tribes have been scattered. Well, as you're just reading that, go, what are, what are these 12 tribes? What is he talking about? In one sense, is referring to all of God's people as aliens and exiles that are living apart from our true heavenly home. We have been scattered in this world as sojourners, but specifically here, it is, it is talking about um, James writing to Jewish Christians outside of Israel. And so how they've been, they have been spread all around outside of Israel. And this, this letter, though, is very much just for us tonight as it was for those 12 tribes of Israel. And he does not address the, le- the letter to one specific church. Often the Apostle Paul will say, this is to the church at Galatia or this church at, at Corinth. He doesn't do that here. And so it is just as much for us as it was for that audience. And James starts out in verse 1, and he gives us the impression that he's in a hurry. He, he is, his, his writing is um, almost like my preaching is a lot of times. Like, I'll, I'll get in fifth gear, and then I'll just go. And then Andrea's pacing in the back and t- telling me to slow down and give me all these hand signals. And it always, always confuses me because James, he jumps in and says, here's who I am. And then he just goes right into the letter. He doesn't give a long greeting or a long, you know, he doesn't make it all fluffy. And how are you guys doing? He just jumps right into the content of his letter. And so we are to understand James to be a letter of pastoral encouragement and exhortation written to Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine in the middle of 40s of the first century. In other words, his primary audience is already Christians. And so if you're a Christian tonight, then this letter is for you. If you're in here and you say, well, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian, or, or, or does that mean I should just tune you out for the next 30 minutes, or should I not invite my non-Christian friends during this series? That's not what that means at all. Uh, hopefully you all know this, but everyone is welcome here. We welcome non-Christians, we welcome skeptics, and we hope that they will come and, and join us in this journey. And I believe that anyone, regardless of their beliefs, will walk away with as much truth and practical wisdom on how to live as anyone else. And that's really what everybody wants. Everybody wants truth and practical wisdom on how do I live a better life. And James is going to show us that. Pick up now in, in verses 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what's the main point of those verses? We see these joy and trials. They are designed to produce a spiritual maturity that couldn't happen otherwise. And so it's kind of like this. Think about growing up. I'm 34 years old. But in order to get to 34, I had to go through elementary school. There's stages before that, but I'm going to jump into elementary school. And then I had to go through painful middle school. And then I went through this thing called puberty, where you start to get these white things on your face. And then hair starts growing in parts of your body that you didn't know you, that you could even grow hair. And you go through all these hormonal changes, right? And so I think about it. I had to go through those things in order to get to the place of maturity that I am right now. Now, I know my wife who met me at 18 thinks I haven't matured a whole lot since she met me, but at 34, I'm much more mature than, than when I was a little boy going through all those different stages. And so there's a level of maturity that I'm attaining to, but I had to go through different trials. I mean, do you guys not think middle school and high school is a trial? Today, it's worse than when I was in school. And, and going through puberty and, and, and acne and all those weird things, right? Those are trials that we face in order to get to the place of maturity and just physical life. And so he's saying there are, are trials that we face 
And as much as we don't necessarily enjoy them, there's no way that we could attain to the spiritual maturity and look more like Jesus apart from those trials. And then he tells us, he says, Count it all joy, brothers and sisters. And so he's addressing those specifically in the church because he's saying we see where the world will chase temporary happiness. They see what is the momentary pleasure? What's, what's the newest thing right now? And, and what, what is going to give me that happiness for this moment rather than spiritual happiness? And so we see that these trials and tests, they challenge one's faith, but they help one attain to the maturity that we're after. Now, specifically in this context at this time, some of the trials they're facing are, are poverty and persecution. That's, that's what early Christians faced most often. But James has all kinds of trials and difficulties in mind here. He's come up persecution, poverty, financial problems, oppression, marginalization, ostracism, sickness, death, relationship issues, marriage problems, rebellious children. Maybe you had to relocate to a city that you don't love, a hated job, conflict in the church, and the list continues on. Like, hello, have you ever dealt with any of these things? Paul, I mean, James is saying all types of trials, all kinds of trials, which is really encouraging for us because if he had just given us one type of trial and we're thinking, man, I've never dealt with that. This book is not for me. But he says all types of trials. So whatever you're going through right now, he is addressing that. And a key word that's easily missed in verse 2 is it says whenever, not if, but when. I think many of us spend as much time as we can to avoid trials at all costs. But James is telling us that if it's not a matter of if trials will happen, but he's saying, how will you respond? How will we respond as people of faith when those trials do happen? In other words, what will be your posture and response when the crap hits the fan? Do, do you run away from those or do you embrace those? I think even my own life. I spend a lot of my time going, man, if I don't speak the truth in this situation, it seems on the surface that things are going to be okay. If I can avoid this and I can cannot do these things over here, it seems like momentary pleasure I will have. But in the end, it's saying you need to speak the truth with grace. And then when you go through a trial, how it is that we can find joy in that. Now, verse 3, the, the Greek word for testing, is dom- meaning dominion, denotes a positive test intended to make one's faith genuine. And so we see the result of genuine faith is steadfastness or faithful endurance kind of like gold from a refiner's fire. There's a patient endurance that comes out of the testing situation. It's a new facet of the believer's character that could not exist without testing. And so it's, it's one of those things, and if you can look back at your life, specifically your life since you've been in Christ, think about the trials you've had to go through. Now, most of us would not say, man, I want to go back through that again. And I've, I know some of you well enough to say, I would never want to go through that. I would never put that on anyone else. But at the same time, you say, man, I grew so much by going through that that there's no way I could be the person I am today if I hadn't gone through that situation. And we are told that the steadfastness from verse 3 ultimately leads to perfection. And so as Christ followers, we grow in holiness, yet we are not perfected in its realization until Jesus returns. And by recognizing that God can use these problems and tribulations to produce Christians who are mature and complete. And so James' plea to us, James' plea to us tonight is whatever our situation Whatever crap you're going through, it is not to let such times finish us as Christians. Maybe you found yourself there where you said, man, I just want to give up on life. Or man, I just want to give up on the faith. Because if God was really a God of, of love, then why would I not go through this? Like, God, have you forgotten me? Have you ever found yourself there? Like, crying out to the Lord, have you forgotten me? Like, why am I going through this situation? 
Why? You know, I, I've told you guys this before. I, sometimes I'm coming in Portland and going, God, why did you bring me here? Did you bring me here to go through this crap? Like, what are you doing here? And James is saying, don't give up on the situation because God is using that situation to refine you and he's working that out in you and you're actually looking more like Jesus as a result. So let me ask you this. How can we become someone who perseveres, stands firm in the faith through hard times, and knows blessing from God in our suffering present and eternal future? Any ideas? Let me ask it this way. How can we be people who persevere in our faith and stand firm in our faith in hard times? Accountability. Accountability? That'd be a great way. Kind of within the community with one another. Anybody else? Remembering God's promises, yeah. That and intentionally remembering what he's already got you through. Mm-hmm. Like making a list or just like counting your blessings, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So accountability, remembering God's promises, and then remembering what God's already brought you through and how he saw you through the other side. Okay, I think those are all great. Looking back at verses 2 through 4. He says, consider it pure joy in verse 2. And so he's not telling us so much how to feel, but how to think. He's not basing on our feelings. I think we, play, we place too much on our feelings today in life. Like, I don't feel this way, and so as a result, I don't want this. And he's going, That's, your feelings come and go. Your feelings may change on what you ate for lunch today. You know, if you eat Mexican food, then you may not feel so great tonight if you ate a bunch of spicy food. So it's going like, I can't base it. i got to base it on how. James said, you need to think in this way, not based on how you feel. And he's saying that we will face trials of many kinds, but that we can be joyful in whatever those trials are. And whatever is causing you to worry tonight, whatever is causing you concern, whatever it is you might have anxiety about, you might be thinking, man, this coming week or tomorrow, but you just don't understand, Matt, I've got this meeting this week, or I've got this phone call coming up, or I've got to face this, this situation. Whatever it is that you can consider it joyful, even in the midst of the real life situation that you're dealing with. The second thing is back in verse 3. He said, these trials are what teach us to persevere. Perseverance is the means to our wonderful end, that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so there's something about persevering. There's something about enduring through the trial itself. The third thing is that these trials cause us to grow into the very people that we were saved to be. We should long as Christ followers to become more like Jesus. We should long to look more like Jesus, to know him more fully and to know him more intimately. Have you ever stopped to think that if if one of our goals is to look more like Jesus, that you can't get there without these trials? Going back to my question, if I say, who wants to look more like Jesus? And we all go, know the Christian answer. We all know the Sunday school answer. Like, yes, we want to look more like Jesus. Have you realized you can't get there without going through the trial that you're going through right now? That you can't get there without the trials of life that you go through? So it's like, how much do we really want to look like Jesus? Or would we rather kind of stay safe over in our own emotions and our own feelings, our own thoughts? Like, no, I want to stay over here. I want to look like Matt. None of you want to look like me. Um, I, want to, I, know, but I want to look like myself, not like Jesus. Because in order to look like Jesus, we have to go through these trials and these hardships. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What's Paul saying there? 
He is saying rejoice in suffering because it's going to produce an endurance in you. And in time, that endurance is going to produce a character in you, which results in hope. And so the trials and difficulties are an opportunity to cling onto the promises of God more tightly. James is saying that is what God can accomplish through suffering that is good, not the suffering itself. So don't misinterpret this. Don't, don't leave here going like, man, like God is just a God that's giving me suffering. No, he's saying it's what God can accomplish through the suffering that is good, not the suffering itself. So it's not to make light of any painful situation that anyone in here is going through right now. And as Christians, we have to think about trials in light of what God is achieving in us through them, in light of the prospect the trials afford us for us to surge ahead in our relationship with him. And so the reason we can find joy is not because it's a joyful occasion, but because we go, man, I am looking to Jesus. My identity is found in Jesus, and I'm being made more like Jesus as a result of what it is that I'm going through and facing right now. Look at the next few verses with me, starting in verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what is the main point of those verses? Believers, followers of Christ, are to ask God for wisdom and trials in order to have an undivided faith and ultimate trust in God. So we see in this section, James starts by addressing believers who lack wisdom in handling their trials. Hello, I would say that is all of us. I'm not saying you're not a wise person, but I think all of us could use more wisdom in how we handle life situations. And so and when you look back at wisdom in the Old Testament, it's a God-given and a God-centered discernment regarding the practical issues of life. And so you think, where does wisdom come from? It comes from prayer for God's help, from crying out to God. And God, he tells us, he will give generously and without reproach. In other words, God doesn't want anyone to hesitate to come to him that we can come to him and ask him for wisdom. This has become a daily prayer of mine. I say, God, I need more wisdom as just a person, just as a human, as, as a man. God, I need wisdom as a husband because I'm really bad at it a lot of days. Don't have to say amen, Andrea. I need wisdom as a father so that I can parent my children better. I need wisdom as a pastor. Don't, you guys don't have to say amen to that one either. So like, I kind of pray that in those or like, God, I need more wisdom. And God invites me to come to him. So that he can give me that. Because of myself, Matt, Matt doesn't have any wisdom on, on my own. I need it from God. Sam Albury says this, Trials give us the opportunity to, to grow, but that does not mean we will know what to do. We do not need to feel that in the middle of trials, this is a time when we have to prove ourselves to show God that we've been paying attention in class and now we have it all figured out. So do you ever feel like when you're, you're facing a trial that you've been handed a test? Like, here, here it goes. All right, and, and when you get a test... It's like, okay, do you, are you going to pass or are you going to fail? I know that's how I feel. When, when facing some issues real recently, I mean very recently, someone said to me, you know what? Everyone is watching you. Everyone's watching to see how you're going to respond to this situation. Now, I'm not sure if I was supposed to feel comfort in that moment because I felt like someone handed me a test and said, here you go. Are you going to pass or fail? And all of a sudden, I had flashbacks and nightmares to the high school version of Matt who was, uh, got test anxiety and was like, oh, no, is it... Is it all of the above, or is it, you know, A and B, and or I'll, you know, give you all those choices. I'm like, oh no, I'm, I'm going to mess up, and everyone's watching me. What am I, what am I going to do here? Now I think I know what they meant, but what this is showing us is that if you're facing a trial and you don't know what to do, it's not a pass or fail test, but it is, we're told to ask God for wisdom. It's kind of an invitation to say you will face the trial. You are facing the trial. 
You don't have to crumble under the pressure, but you need to cry out to God and say, God, I need your wisdom. I don't know what to do in this situation. And God will guide you through it. And you know what? If you get it wrong, God's still there. You can, and you can rest in his, his grace in your life. And we see God as our Father is always poised to help those who ask him for it. And he is characterized by giving generously, by giving to all who ask, and giving without finding fault. And so the key theme here is that there is no limit to God's grace, but we must ask him for it. And we're told in verse 6 to ask with faith. So you think, well, okay, what is, what is faith? A settled trust and confidence in God based on his character and promises as revealed in Scripture. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so what this passage, it tells us to ask in faith. But it also, it says to do it without doubting. So asking with faith is one thing, but it says ask without doubting when you ask in faith. So what does it mean to ask in faith without doubting? Does that, does that mean that if we ever have a doubt that we're not having faith? Like, oh no, all of a sudden like, I'm getting anxiety again. Does that, that mean if we ever doubt that we're not really a Christian? Have you ever thought that? Like, oh no, if I have any doubts, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I'm not really walking with the Lord. So I say that whole prayer again. Do I need to ask Jesus back into my heart? Or was that even the right phrase and the right words, the way to do it the first time? So what does it mean to ask in faith without doubting? This isn't saying that we never have doubts because we all have doubts. But this is referring to someone who has split where they place their trust. And so this is saying, this is someone who trusts God some. You know, I trust God over here, but now I, I trust myself over here. And maybe I trust some money over here and I trust my security in this and my family. And it goes on and on and on. But I've got God. It's almost like when we were in India and we had Hindus who would say like, Jesus sounds awesome. I'm going to add Jesus to all these other gods. Like, no, that's not how it works. That's what we call syncretism. And so it's going, no, like, where do you place your ultimate trust? And so it says this type of doubting, per, this type of person, when they doubt, it's like the waves of the sea. If you've been down the Oregon coast, which I'm assuming you all have, we live in Oregon, it's beautiful, but you see the, the waves, you know, a lot of times it's really choppy and sometimes it's coming way up on the beach and people get sucked out of the sea sometimes, unfortunately. It's saying this type of person, they're like those waves. There's a lot of uncertainty and instability in their life because you're just not sure where they're at. You know, do they, do they trust in God? Well, they do this week, but now this week they don't. And the day they did half the day and then they, they didn't over here. And so in short, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And so we need to make sure that our loyalty and trust rest in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It says, a person who doubts God's goodness dishonors him. And such a person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord since he is unsure of whether God is good or will do any good. He is a double-minded man, torn between God and the world, and therefore is unstable in all of his ways. And what James characterizes in these verses is not the person who has an occasional doubt about his or her faith or lapses into sin now and again, but few indeed would ever have any of their prayers answered if that were the case. But rather, what James is doing is he's chastising the person who is basically insincere in seeking for things like wisdom from God. He is chastising the person who is clearly has two masters, not one. And so James argues that the gift of wisdom is granted to those who trust God who are not double-minded. In asserting this, he's arguing that those who compromise their faith, who look to both God and the world and as their norms and securities, are in reality lacking the essence of any faith at all. And so where does your faith lie? Who, where do you put your faith? Where do you put your trust? Not as to have an occasional doubt, but, but do you really trust in God? Or do you trust in God because you've added all these other things around God and God's been added to it? Here's the reality. The trials of life never end. How many of you ever thought this? If I could just get through this trial, then I'll be free. 
If I could just get through this situation, things will be good. If I can make it one more day, if I can get this behind me and it's a distant memory in the past, like things will be golden. We will always have trials. They just change from season to season. And so I know that's, I think that's one of the hard realities of adult life that I'm still fighting against, if I'm honest. Going like, ah, why do we always have to have these trials and these situations and this, like, what? can't we just get past this and go play on the playground? You know, like my kids just want to go play on the playground. But we will always have trials. They just change from season to season. So when you're single, they're going to look one way. And when you're in college, they're going to look one way. And when you're married, they're going to look one way. And you have kids, they're going to look another way. And, and then all the stages of life that none of us have hit yet, they're going to look in a totally different way. And James doesn't say that joy is the only response to the trials. So don't leave here tonight going, man, like I'm in the roughest situation in my life. And James and Matt are saying I've got to have joy all of a sudden. No, it's not saying exclusively joy, but that you can indeed find real joy in the midst of your painful trials. It's a joy of assurance that we belong to God and that glory is coming after the suffering because we have hope of all people in the world. If you consider yourself a Christ follower, we have hope. And that is the difference is that we all go through trials. But when you go through trials as one who doesn't have Jesus, you have no hope. You, you, you just share at the end of yourself and you go, I'm, I'm done. I've got to walk away from it. We actually have a real tangible hope that should cause us to have a joy. That doesn't mean you walk around with a fake smile on your face. It doesn't mean that we have to walk out skipping out of the, the building tonight. But that means that there's a joy because there's a hope somewhere deep down inside of us in Jesus Christ and that he is working in these trials that we look more like him and that eventually when, when heaven meets earth and, and all the sin and, and everything's gone, that we get to have true, eternal, everlasting joy in Christ, in Christ alone. And I think in our daily life, we have to make a deliberate choice to experience joy in the midst of suffering because our ultimate joy is found in Christ, not in circumstances. Do you believe that? Do you believe that message? Because in a city like ours, of all the cities, and you say, why do you talk about Portland so much? Because we live in Portland. That's why I talk about Portland so much. In a city like ours, it's full of people with solemn faces. We probably have one of the highest rates of depression in the country. Some of it's our weather. There's some natural factors. But I actually think a lot of it's spiritual as well. And that we should show people that, you know what? This life is really hard. Today, maybe you say, today did suck. For me as a Christ follower as well, you can say those things. But you can say, but I have this joy because I have a hope. And that is the hope that we are to share with the world around us. That's why God, I believe, has placed us here. That's why I think God's bringing more Christians to this city. He'll say, why are Christians moving from all over, this, all over the country? Because God wants us here. That's why. And he wants us to show the people around us why we have this hope and this faith in Jesus Christ. And that we will endure trials faithfully because we love our Savior, the one who bore our greatest trial. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So we look to Jesus for grace and we endure in hope knowing that he right now is interceding for us. And that should cause an encouragement and that should cause a smile on your face. And one day, one day we will see him. Then it will be worth it. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for James. We thank you for this book that was written to your people that includes us. God, as you know, we all face trials and tribulations. We face setbacks. God, we, we face those as individuals, as couples, as families. God, we face those as a church. And God, we cry out to you and we say, help us to have the joy that comes in knowing you. God, we cry out and say, give us the wisdom to know how to handle and face life situations. God, I was read it in, reminded in a book I read this week that 
Being a Christian is hard. It's not an easy life. But God, that we can find joy in the midst of the trials. And God, that we can show the world around us that is, that is watching us, not as a pass or fail test, but, but that we do have an ultimate hope that they don't have, and that hope comes in you. God, we give you the rest of this time. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to continue in, in worshiping by responding. We'll have Joseph come back up. And the first way we'll respond is through singing songs of praise, songs of joy to Jesus. We'll respond through giving. Most of us give online, but the box is back there. If, if for some reason you find joy in using a physical check or cash, we take those things as well. My parents are coming in town soon, so I'm hoping mom places some checks in that box while they're here. And then we, can res- we respond through communion, through the Lord's table. And as a church, hopefully even tonight you're seeing this in, this in James, that this is how we remember what the Lord has done. Even in trials, this is how we remember it. Because we forget it. I think it's in trials that we forget it. That we forget what Christ has done. But even in trials, we can believe it again and we can commit to what Jesus did. And so let this be a time of the examination of your heart and your life. Take time to reflect and remember the death of Christ and, and anticipate his return. So take a moment to examine your life and then be reminded that the bread that you tear off, when you tear that off, that represents Jesus' body that was broken for you and for me and for the sins of the world. And that when you dip it into the wine, that remember that it was Jesus' blood that was spilled out for you and for the sins of the world. The table is open. Prayer is available. The time is yours.